Welcome to Clint Farm Pod. In this episode, Dennis Velasco speaks with Michelle Roth Klein from the FDA. They will discuss microdosing studies in children. What exactly is a drug microdose? How is it defined? The Food and Drug Administration and the European Medicines Agency define a microdose similarly. It can be one hundredth of the no observed adverse effect level in animals, or 100 micrograms of a new drug, or one hundredth of the predicted pharmacologic dose based on animal data, whichever of these doses is lowest. One one hundredths of the predicted pharmacologic dose. Isn't that too small to have a therapeutic effect? Yes, absolutely. Microdosing studies are done for research purposes and have no therapeutic or diagnostic intent. So why are microdosing studies performed, especially in children? Classically, microdosing studies have been performed in adults for several different reasons. We might want to understand whether inhibition of an enzyme, for example, that we see in experimental systems in test tubes is also observed in humans. Microdosing studies can provide important information on pharmacokinetics. They can help us select the most promising lead product from a group of candidates designed to interact with a particular target in humans. Um, And they can also tell us more about a product's biodistribution characteristics or where a drug travels within the human body. In children, microdosing studies might also be used to understand more about the ontogeny, the uh, development over time, for example, of hepatic enzymes involved in drug metabolism. So we know that the expression and activity of these enzymes can vary considerably, say, between neonates and older children or adults. So the information from these studies might be used to understand drug disposition in young children or potentially to inform dose selection. How do you evaluate the acceptability of these studies? Microdosing studies would be evaluated under the additional safeguards for children in clinical investigations. These are found in FDA regulations at 21 CFR 50 subpart D. The first principle is that of scientific necessity, which requires that trials in children should only be done if the information obtained by the study addresses an important public health need of children and cannot be done in adults who are able to consent for themselves. Clearly, some of the studies I mentioned earlier related to the ontogeny of hepatic enzymes in neonates, for example, or pharmacokinetic information in young children can't be done in adults and may meet the scientific necessity requirement. I also noted earlier that microdosing studies have no diagnostic or therapeutic intent, meaning that these studies do not provide a clinical or medical benefit to the health of the enrolled child. When studies don't provide this benefit, the additional protections for children constrain the risk level to which children may be exposed. So that means that microdosing studies would need to be evaluated under what we call the lower risk pathway. 
The lower risk pathway is actually made up of two different categories of research. The first category is minimal risk. So minimal risk has a regulatory definition that's cited in the article, but you can think of minimal risk as commensurate with the risks of daily life of a healthy child living in a safe environment. So healthy children are taken for yearly well-child visits to their pediatrician. At these visits, children are weighed and measured. They have a physical exam and maybe hearing and vision screening. So similar procedures to these in research would be considered minimal risk. The second low-risk category is that of a minor or slight increase over minimal risk. This category of research has several additional requirements that must be fulfilled. An intervention or procedure that is approved under this category needs to present experiences to children that are reasonably commensurate with those in their actual or expected medical, dental, psychological, social situations. This is so that children are, who are able to assent are better able to understand sort of what they're getting into in research. In addition, this minor increase over minimal risk category has the requirement that the research must be likely to yield generalizable knowledge about the child's disorder or condition that is of vital importance. So this means that all children participating in research under this category need to have a disorder or condition. So what does that mean? Our regulations don't define disorder or condition, but we often use a definition by the Institute of Medicine um, who define disorder or condition as a set of specific characteristics that scientific evidence has shown to compromise the child's health or to increase the risk of developing a health problem in the future. Therefore, a child could be healthy but at risk for the condition that is the object of the research based on scientific and or clinical evidence. The second study actually wasn't a microdosing study because the enrolled infants were given a dose of a drug that was a bit higher than a true microdose. However, the study performed similar exploratory sorts of analyses. So infants in this study were given a low dose of a drug called dextromethorphan, and the purpose of the study was to assess the ontogeny of the hepatic enzyme CYP2D6. Given the relatively higher dose of dextromethorphan that was used in this study, it may be more difficult to justify approval of this study under the minimal risk category. We usually don't give even a low dose of a drug to children that don't need it for medical reasons at a well-child visit, for example. However, we know that infants have a deficiency of the CYP2D6 enzyme relative to adults. So an institutional review board could determine that this relative deficiency of CYP2D6 enzyme activity in infancy met the disorder or condition requirement under the minor increase over minimal risk category. The relative CYP2D6 deficiency may put infants at greater risk of an adverse drug reaction than adults. You've talked about the evaluation of these studies in the United States, but microdosing studies take place in Europe and elsewhere as well. Are international guidelines and safeguards similar to those we have here? Generally, yes, but there are some differences. Many countries around the world have a minimal risk category of research that allows certain low-risk research in cases where the research doesn't directly benefit children. International guidelines also generally agree that studies in children should have a strong scientific rationale, should be scientifically necessary to perform in the pediatric population, and would require the permission of the child's parents or guardians. 
However, the minor increase over minimal risk category in particular is quite specific to the U.S. regulatory framework and isn't generally shared internationally. I should mention also that there are research guidelines developed by the International Conference on Harmonization, or ICH. These guidelines basically are developed by an international working group and eventually adopted by the regulatory authorities of the European Union, Japan, and the United States. In the ICH guideline E6 on good clinical practice, uh, there is a section regarding research on non-consenting subjects uh, that would include children. And the guideline says that for research on non-consenting subjects that does not offer therapeutic benefit, the risk or the foreseeable risks to the subjects should be low and that the negative impact on the subject's well-being should be minimized and low. That was Michelle Rothklein, and you can find her article at onlinelibrary.wiley.com. Farm Pod is a co-production of the American Society for Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics and Wiley. It was recorded and hosted by Dennis Velasco and directed, edited, and coordinated by Joe Troiano. All opinions of this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors. 